It's great to be back with you as I was getting back into the swing of things and digging in on Gen- in Genesis 17 on a little bit last Sunday night and Monday morning. I was just like, oh, like, this is why I'm doing this. Like, I, I just love digging into God's word and being able to share it with you guys. So I'm excited to be back up here and be able to share God's word with you this afternoon. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, as we come again this afternoon to your word, we ask that you would speak to your people. God, that you would show us your glory, that we would see you for who you are, that we would see ourselves in light of who you are. God, that we would be changed, that you would do a work in our lives, that you would do a work in this church, and that you would do a work in this community to make your name known. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so yeah, there is a, there's an outline here in your, inside your worship guide. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 17, verses 1 through 4, and that's on page 11 in the Pew Bibles in front of you. Uh, if you do not own a Bible, the yellow colored Bibles belong to us. You can feel free to take one of those. The brown-colored Bibles belong to Portico, so please do not run off with those. We're going to be looking here at God's gracious covenant promises in Genesis chapter 17. Well, has anyone ever promised you something that seemed too good to be true? Maybe left you thinking, you know, there's no way that this can happen. There's no way this person is going to come through and and pull this off. Maybe you've had promises made to you, or maybe you've been the person who's made the promises, and maybe you've broken the promise, or you've been on the receiving end of promises being broken. For myself, growing up in a a broken home, uh, the reality of my childhood was having a lot of promises made to me that were frequently broken, and that was a hard thing as a kid to kind of deal with and to understand how to, how to trust people and how to deal with promises that people made and then feeling like they weren't going to keep their promises. And I don't know about you, you know, whether it's something, a similar dynamic with your family growing up. Uh, maybe it's been in a relationship with another person. Maybe it's in your work environment. You know, we all deal with broken promises, and I think it is the part of the human dilemma. It's part of the reality of of sin and living in a fallen world. And how do we react when promises are are broken or promises are not kept? I think some of the things that I think about in my own life, bitterness, right? Just holding that grudge for a long time. Or anger. Anger coming out just like crazy all over the place. Or maybe you retreat, right? Right? Give them the cold shoulder. Just avoid. We have a God who has made some amazing promises to us. And some things that might seem like they're too good to be true. And if we're honest with God, if we're honest with ourselves, if we're honest with others, we often fail to believe his promises. Or at least to think about them Correctly, we often think about them in in human terms, maybe based on our own human experience. 
what we're going to see here today, our, kind of our main idea here in Genesis 17, is that we serve a God who is faithful to keep his gracious covenant promises. We've been going through the book of Genesis, and the last month or so, month and a half, we've been looking at the life of Abraham, how God called Abraham from, from being a pagan in, in the land of Ur of the Chaldeans, called him to go out to a land that he would show to him, promised to give him offspring, promised to give him this land and blessings, give him many blessings. He said he would bless those who bless him and curse those who curse him. So these ideas of offspring and land and blessing and curses, all these things kind of flow throughout the book of Genesis and then really throughout the whole Bible. These are some major themes that we see going on. Our last sermon in Genesis was in chapter 15, two weeks ago, and Bill talked about the covenant that God made with Abraham in chapter 15, and you'll remember it was a, it was a unilateral covenant, meaning God initiated it, and God, God kind of sealed the deal by himself. He had Abraham cut the animals and lay them in two rows, and God put Abraham to sleep, and then in a smoking pot and a flaming torch, God symbolically goes through those animals, and the symbolism there was saying, God is saying, if I don't keep my end of the deal, then I'm going to be like those animals. And Abraham had nothing to do with it. Abraham was, was asleep. So God unilaterally makes this covenant saying that he was going to keep the covenant. God was going to keep his end of the deal. And this is an amazing display of, of God's grace in covenant making and covenant keeping. What if you know... Anything about the life of Abraham <laughs> didn't take Abraham very long to, to mess things up, right? Chapter 16, which we're not going to go through that and we're not going to read through that, but you can go back and read that on your own. You're probably familiar with the story. Abram and Sarai, they devise a plan to, to get the offspring that they thought that God had promised them. And Sarai gives Hagar, her servant, to Abram, to Abram and he takes her and they have a child together, Ishmael, and then we kind of see all the things that are going to happen, all the strife that's going to happen you know, throughout the book of Genesis and even throughout biblical history as the descendants of Ishmael and the descendants of Isaac are, are fighting together, and we see it even down to this very day. So there's a lot kind of wrapped up in all of that. And that scene there sets the stage for our passage today here in Genesis chapter 17. So we're looking at Genesis 17 verses 1 through 14. When Abram was 99 years old, appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you. And you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. 
And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. The word of the Lord. Well, the first thing that we're going to see here in this narrative is an impossible demand. See that there in your outline, an impossible demand in verses 1 to 3. It had been 13 years since Ishmael was born, and Abraham is waiting. He's still waiting for that promised son, for that promise to be fulfilled. Wondering if he has messed everything up, if he has let God down too many times. I think from our perspective, it would be totally, totally reasonable if God would just say, Okay, Abraham, you had your chance. I'm going to set you aside, and I'm going to call somebody else, right? Why not? I mean, I give somebody else the, the promise. You failed your end, but that's not how it works. God doesn't do that. That's not what we see here. We see a picture of the grace of God displayed to Abraham. And this is a picture of the grace of God in our lives. That no matter how many times we screw things up, right? No matter how many times we sin, no matter how many times we fail to keep God's commands and do what he has commanded us to do, told us to do, asked us to do, that God doesn't give up on us. God doesn't scrap the plan and say, okay, I'm going to go find somebody else because you guys didn't keep your end of the bargain. And again, we saw that in Genesis chapter 15 with the Lord passing through those animals. God said he was going to keep the covenant. So we don't see that. What do we see? We see God coming to Abraham again. In verse 1, he says, I am God Almighty, El Shaddai. He's saying, I've got this, Abraham. I am the one who is strong. I am the one who is powerful. Trust in me. And he says, walk before me and be blameless. I think it's easy sometimes we get hung up on this idea of conditional and unconditional. Right? We saw in Genesis chapter 12 and in Genesis chapter 15 that God, what God did, it was unconditional. God was going to take care of it. But we're introduced here in this passage to some some conditions. But again, all of these conditions, all of this flows out of God's promises that he sovereignly made and that he sovereignly initiated. He told Abraham, walk before me and be blameless. That's the call to every believer. That's the call to every one of us in our lives from the Lord. Walk before me and be blameless. This is the mark of the blessed life. Psalm 119, that great psalm, that massive psalm, 176 verses, biggest chapter in the Bible. 
Psalm 119. It's all about the word of the Lord, right? The law of the Lord. Psalm 119, verse 1. Listen to what it says. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Like Abraham, we look to our past failures and we realize that we haven't been blameless, right? And we look, up, we look to our future and we know ourselves, right? We know we're not going to be blameless tomorrow or next week or in five years or in 25 years. We know our weakness. We know our unbelief. What do we do in light of this seemingly impossible demand? We can look to Abraham here. What does he do? Verse 3. Abraham fell on his face. That was his only option. That was the only thing he could do. He falls on his face in worship and submission to the God who said, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Ian Duguid, he's a professor of Old Testament at Westminster Seminary. I quoted from a book of his a few weeks back. He has a very simple definition of covenant. If you want to write this down, it's pretty short. His definition of covenant is a relationship based on the surrender of control. A relationship based on the surrender of control. And two weeks ago, Bill gave us a great explanation of what covenants are and especially how things worked in the ancient Near East. You had a, you had a greater king and then you had a lesser king. And the greater king would come and he would make demands on the lesser king. And the lesser king would have to live up to those things or else the covenant would be broken. This is what Duguid says about this. He says, when the great king comes and offers to establish a covenant with you, you really have only two choices. You can accept the covenant relationship on his terms and receive its benefits, or you can refuse it and face the consequences. Accept his terms and receive the benefits, blessings, right? Or refuse it face the consequences, curses. So what are we going to choose? When faced with, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless, what are we going to choose? Are we going to surrender? Are we going to fall on our faces and accept God's terms of the covenant? Or are we going to refuse him and face the consequences? I think this is really the key to understanding the rest of this whole chapter and to understanding the Christian life. We saw it in our catechism questions the last couple weeks and and this week. This distinction between justification, which is God's one-time act in declaring us righteous before him and saving us, making us new. And then sanctification, which is that gradual work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. This is how God has always graciously dealt with his people in covenant relationship. And we see it here beginning with Abraham. So that kind of idea of justification and sanctification there are going to inform these next two sections that we're going to look at. So the second section here, an incredible promise in verses 4 through 8. This section here, again, is going to be analogous to God's work of justification. 
God makes some incredible promises here to Abraham. Verses 4 through 6, he promises to give him descendants. He says that kings are going to come from him, right? And we know if we've been paying attention to the flow of the biblical history, the biblical narrative, that the king of kings came from Abraham's line, right? Talked about this in the beginning of Genesis. Matthew 1.1, the very first verse in the New Testament, says the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, right? The king, David the king, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Jesus is the promised king going all the way back here to this promise to Abraham. God was going to multiply him. He was going to make him into nations. He was going to give him many descendants as numerous as the stars, as numerous as the sand on the seashore. He's also going to give him land. Verse 8, I will give to you and your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession. And then we see this Emmanuel principle. And I think this is really at the heart of the covenant. I think this is what it's really all about. The Emmanuel principle, Emmanuel meaning God with us. God promises to be with Abraham, to be with his descendants, to be their God, and they will be his people. Verse 7, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. Then the end of verse 8 there, and I will be their God this starts here, this language of God being their God and, and them being his people. It's all, it, it's all related to this idea of covenant. We see this language again in the beginning of the book of Exodus in chapter 3 at, when Moses is before the burning bush. God tells him, I will, be, I will be your God and you will be my people to tell the people of Israel that. So there's this promise of deliverance from Egypt that's wrapped up in this idea of God being their God and them being his people. Throughout the whole Old Testament, the prophets testify to this idea. This language is used throughout the prophets, especially in Ezekiel and Jeremiah. And then I love this, Revelation chapter 21, verse 3. The consummation of all of human history. This is how it's all going to end, folks. John says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. This is after the new Jerusalem comes down. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. History is going to conclude with these promises that were made to Abraham being fulfilled once and for all. That God will dwell with his people forever. This, this language that we see here of this everlasting possession, everlasting covenant. Those things are going to be fulfilled and they're going to last forever. These, we can't, you can't just tear the Bible apart and, and just pick and choose certain things. What we believe, what God has done to save us in Christ, it all goes back, it goes back before this. But this is such a huge part of the story of redemption. God making these promises to be our God and that we will be his people. And then there's one more element here in this section of an incredible promise. And for whatever reason, I don't know why, it seems like we kind of skip over this one. 
in verse 5. He says, no longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I think we always talk about Jacob being named Israel and, and Saul being named Paul. I don't know if it's just because Abram just gets one extra syllable in there or what it is. But it seems like we overlook this idea of Abraham being renamed. And I think this is really the heart of this whole passage. This is the heart of looking at this idea of justification. God does a supernatural and a sovereign work. He says, no longer shall you be called, but you shall be called, for I have made you. No longer, but for I have made you. That's, all, that's what all of us long to hear God say to us, don't we? No longer shall you be called this, but you shall be called this, for I have made you. I have made you new. We can't make ourselves new. We can, you can go to the courthouse and you can legally change your name, but you can't change your identity. You can't change who you really are. You can't give yourself a new heart. If you've driven down Main Street past the Menominee Nation Arena, you may be seeing a sign out front, Becoming Kareem. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, famous NBA basketball player, uh, wrote a book recently. They're doing a, doing a book tour, going to be there in September. You can go on his website, becomingkareem.com, and read a little bit about his life. Well, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar was not born Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. He was born Lou Alcindor in New York in a Catholic family. And pretty much one of the first lines in all the explanations on all the promo stuff is, the good little boy in Catholic school, and then it goes on to talk about how he rejected that. He rejected the faith of his parents. He rejected, and there was a lot of political things going on in, in that time and such. But Lou Alcindor converted to Islam and changed his name and became Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. But did, 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 who, did his heart change? At the core of who he was, did he really change? Not without Jesus, right? And I'm not trying to diss on Islam. You know, uh, Ron Artest, NBA player, changed his name to Meta World Peace, right? Buddhist background there. So there's lots of reasons why people change their names. There's lots of reasons. You know, maybe it's family of origin issues or whatever. But what, what good does it do if there's no heart change? So as Christians, why don't we change our names when we, when we become Christians? Why don't we change our names? There's no doubt, I know many of us in this room have had pretty dramatic conversion experiences. We've had maybe childhoods that we would like to forget. And it's like, you know, I'd like to, I'd like to maybe change my last name and not be associated with those people anymore. You know, why don't we just run down to the courthouse and change our name or why don't we adopt some new style of dress or some other outward sign that will let everyone know that we are now a follower of Jesus? Well, that kind of leads us into the next part of our discussion about the physical and the spiritual relationship of the sign of the covenant. This last section here, we're going to see an intriguing sign, an intriguing sign in verses 9 through 14. So now we come to the conditional part of the covenant. 
God said to Abraham in verse 9, As for you, you shall keep my covenant. Abraham's obedience was in applying the physical sign of the covenant that would serve as a reminder in their flesh of what God had done to call them to be his people. So circumcision serves first here as a physical sign. Circumcision serves as a physical sign. It was an identity marker in the flesh. Okay? Obvious. It represented a couple different things. The first one was cleansing. That idea of of cutting off a part of the male reproductive organ, removing that foreskin. It was a picture of cutting something off and cleansing and that those future generations, everyone who would be born of a Hebrew person would in a way be clean unto the Lord because of that. So females weren't circumcised, but if a female was born to a Hebrew person, they were a recipient of that cleansing in that regard. For other nations, it was actually an adult rite of passage. All the nations around Israel, the men were circumcised as a kind of a transition into adulthood, probably in their teen years. But in Israel, the children are set apart to the Lord. This is that picture of an everlasting covenant. It's not waiting until they're older, waiting until they're an adult to see if they will decide on their own to follow the Lord. Instead, it's saying, you are a part of the covenant community. You are expected to walk before the Lord and be blameless. Kids, we expect that of you as your parents. And the same grace that dad and mom need from God, you need that same grace too. Why would we keep our children at arm's length? Why would we stiff arm them waiting and hoping that someday, maybe, if, if all the stars align, that they will make a, make a decision to follow Christ? Why would we treat them as if they're, they're cut off from the covenant promises until a day when they make some decision on their own. That would have been unthinkable for a Jewish parent to treat their child in that way, to say, no, I'm sorry, you are cut off until someday. No, you are part of the covenant community. The blessings that God has given us as your parents, we want to pass on to you. That's not a guarantee that that child is going to become a believer, right? We... Every time we baptize a little kid, we, we reiterate that. Like this, this is not saving the child, right? But this idea of the continuity of the covenants, the continuity of the way we as parents raise up our children to know the Lord, that's one of the main reasons why we do infant baptism. Because those kids, they, should not, they are not to be cut off from the promise. The promise is for them to see that in Acts chapter 2. Verses 37 to 39. Another aspect of circumcision, one was cleansing. The second is judgment. We see that in verse 14 here. It says, Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So this idea of being judged, being cut off from the people if you are not under the covenant if you don't have the sign of the covenant. So cleansing and judgment were two big aspects there. 
So circumcision in that way serves as a physical sign. Circumcision also serves as a spiritual sign. This idea of cleansing being a spiritual sign is seen throughout the rest of the Old Testament. Especially in Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy chapter 10 verses 12 through 16. The Lord says, And now Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is in it. Yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples as they are to this day. Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. Moses here isn't saying, well, we don't need to do physical circumcision anymore. Just only circumcise your heart. They still did the physical sign. But he's saying the heart behind it is the heart, right? Circumcise your hearts. Don't be stubborn. Don't resist the Lord. Circumcise your hearts. And this is a rehashing of this promise of the Abrahamic covenant. Then in Deuteronomy 30, verses 1 through 6, kind of reiterates this. It says, When all these things come upon you, speaking of the blessings and the curses, just got done with a couple chapters of that, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you, and return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey his voice in all that I command you today, with all your heart and with all your soul. Then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you. And he will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. If your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there the Lord your God will gather you. And from there he will take you. And the Lord your God will bring you into the land that your fathers possessed, that you may possess it. And he will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. Here's the key. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. Saying God is going to do it. In chapter 10, told them to circumcise the foreskin of their hearts. Now it's saying the Lord God, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring saying God is going to have mercy on you. God is going to have mercy on your children. So what? So that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. It's an amazing promise. Paul connects this idea of cleansing with the cleansing of circumcision with the cleansing of baptism in Colossians chapter 2. It says, in him, Christ, also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. So this idea of cleansing in a spiritual sense 
We also have the idea of judgment, okay? The idea of being cut off. We see this in Christ, right? Christ was circumcised as a baby, and then he was baptized by John the Baptist. What's the significance of this? Christ is identifying with his people. He's identifying with the people of the Old Testament, right, by being circumcised, by fulfilling the whole law. He's identifying with the New Testament church, with his people, by being baptized and by taking on the New Testament sign of the covenant. If you look at the uh, front of your worship guide, there's a quote on there from Timothy Brindle. This is from a, this is pretty awesome. I shared this with Daniel. And uh, Timothy Brindle is a, is a rapper. Uh, he just finished his master's MDiv at uh, Westminster Theological Seminary. His like senior thesis project is like a 400-page book, and he put out a rap album, and it's called The Unfolding. If you got Spotify or some of the songs that are on YouTube, check it out. There's a song called Circumcision on there that's amazing. But the whole album is all about how from the beginning all the Old Testament continued to unfold to point to Christ. And it's, you can't just like, you know, be sitting in a coffee shop and like be distracted or be wherever listening to it. You got to like sit down and really listen because it's, they're, they're deep songs. But this comes from the chapter on, on circumcision and the song. Or it's actually not, actually not in the song, it's in the book. He says, the old covenant sign of circumcision doubly symbolized God's promise to cleanse the hearts of his people as well as the curse of being cut off from him in judgment due to covenant breaking, both of which are fulfilled in the death and resurrection of Christ and applied to us by the Holy Spirit through our union with him. Jesus bears the curse circumcision symbolized at the cross in order that we might receive the blessing of the cleansed heart that circumcision symbolized. The cleansing rite of the Old Testament, circumcision, it's replaced by the cleansing rite in the New Testament of baptism. As Christians, we are baptized not as a permanent physical sign in our flesh, it's not something, it's not like a big tattoo we put on our arm, right? We don't, we don't get a big fish tattooed on our arm or the ichthus letters on our arm, right? It's not something that people can point to and say, oh, you must be a Christian because, you know, you've got this tattoo or you did this thing. But it's a spiritual sign that points to a circumcised heart, to a new identity, Christian. What might this look like for us? In the classroom, in the workplace, in our homes, in our communities. How will they know? Remember what Jesus said? By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. People can tell, right? I mean, you do something nice for somebody, you go out of your way, people are like, what do you, and then you, you know, if you get to talk to, oh, you're one of those, right? (laughs) You're one of those evangelicals, or you're one of those, like, religious people, right? How strange are we? (laughs) I mean, we're crazy, right? 
We gather here together to worship a God that we can't see, right? We take this book and we say, oh, this guy, you know, who lived 4,000 years ago, God told him to go cut off the ends of their, you know, male anatomy, and we're sitting here today talking about it like it affects our lives, right? Or this guy, you know, who claimed to be the Messiah and claimed to rise from the dead and sent out this ragtag followers of ragtag group of followers who went and flipped the world upside down 2,000 years ago. I mean, how crazy are we to believe this stuff? And then we come here, right? <laughs> I mean, we come to this meal, right? We come to this table. It's a reminder that our hope is not in physical descendants. It's not in land, but it's in a relationship with a God who has promised that he will be our God and we will be his people. It's a reminder that Christ was cut off on the cross, that his body was broken and that his blood was poured out in our place. Christ became the covenant breaker, right? We are the ones who have broken the covenant. Jesus goes and stands in our place and becomes a covenant breaker so that we can go free. Paul, Paul in Galatians talks about Jesus becoming a curse. He stands in our place so that we no longer face being cut off from God. That's what this is about. And again, how crazy are we to come to this table and to say, this is what we're doing, we're remembering. But if it's true, then we're not crazy, right? We're still crazy. But if it's true, the world's claims on us being crazy It doesn't matter, right? So this table, it's for you if you have put your trust in Christ. If you have said, like we talked about in our catechism questions, I can't do anything on my own, right? I can't do any good works to save myself. It's faith in Christ alone that can save me. And as a result of that, I'm going to go out and live for him, right? I'm going to do the things that he's called me to do. But if you have faith in Christ, if you are a Christian, if you are, you don't have to be a member of this church, if you're in good standing with a, with a gospel preaching church, then we want to invite you to come to the table.